Hello and welcome to Speaking Spirit, where we talk about all things spiritual. Your host, John Moore, is a shamanic practitioner and spiritual teacher. And now, here's John. Hello, everybody. It's been a little while. Um, I'm a couple of days late. I usually would be getting this uh, podcast out, and I apologize for that, although I did do two episodes last week, so maybe that makes up for it a little bit. I'm sure you will find it in your heart to forgive me. This um, <clears throat> I normally record these in the morning, and uh, this today is no exception to that. It is the morning, and um, I do like my coffee. If anybody knows if there is a deity or spirit or something associated with coffee anywhere in the world, um, I would love to know that. Get in touch with me. Um, I'm just really curious. I suppose I could do my own research, right? I could Google Google it myself, um, but I would love to hear from people if anybody knows. If there's a deity of coffee, I should probably um, put a statue on my altar or something. But anyway, I'm, I'm drinking my coffee. I'm drinking out of a mug that my children gave to me for Christmas this year. And the mug has a picture of Grumpy Dwarf from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And, um, you know, if you're unfamiliar, you know, uh, with that particular Disney movie from, gosh, the 1930s, you know, Grumpy Dwarf is a guy who's always, um, he's always pouting. He's always unhappy about what's going on. And so there's a picture of Grumpy on my mug, and in a circle around him, it says, this is my happy face. Um, and that always kind of like, cracks me up a little bit, you know, partially because of the juxtaposition of this frowning, unhappy character. And, you know, and the the phrase, this is this is my uh, happy face, obviously, that's, that's kind of humorous. Um, but it leads me into today's topic, actually quite well. And, you know, that topic is, um, you know, that I've titled this the alchemy of suffering. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about alchemy and suffering. And um, I want to leave you today, you know, before this is done with some really, really practical tools you can take out uh, with you um, to heal the world, really, to heal yourself, to heal the world. And, Hopefully that will be, hopefully you'll put it into practice and and find that incredibly useful. Um, You do not have to be a guru to change the world. You do not have to be, uh, you know, a spiritually enlightened master. You, um, You can change the world no matter who you are. In fact, just by existing in a physical body, you're, you know, you, you do change the world. You make an impact on the world and you have a choice about how you can show up in the world and how you can impact the world and all those things. And um, you can, because at your core, and this is a, this is a core truth I've spoken across numbers of podcasts, at your core is this divine spark a piece of God, if you will, right? Every living soul has this. Your it is, it is who you are at your core. It is unchangeable, inseparable, and viable. It's your connection to source, and so you have divinity within you. I am. I have a hundred percent faith in that statement. This is not. Um, you know, this is not something I made up to feel good or anything like that. I've um, worked with this principle a lot in my life, in my training with my clients. Um, when I teach, I teach practices around the space, and I'm going to talk about one of them today, which is a particularly powerful um, practice that has uh, borne out some pretty incredible experimental results when it's been put to the test. So I will talk about that. But the topic today is alchemy, and particularly the what I'm calling the alchemy of suffering. Um, 
you know, if you're not a history buff or, um, you know, ancient history buff, certainly. So, you know, the term alchemy, you might have different thoughts about that. You might picture, you know, a wizard looking person with a long beard and a lab with crucibles and, um, you know, glassware doing experiments and trying to turn lead into gold. And certainly that is a part of, of alchemy. We have, you know, the, the practice of chemistry, the science of chemistry today, you know, owes its roots to the early alchemists. In fact, the word alcohol, um, which is, you know, some of us, some of us enjoy, some of us enjoy more than we should. Some of us enjoy more than others. Um, but is also, you know, alcohol is also a tool for, you know, sanitizing things and, and that sort of thing. Um, it has the same root as alchemy. And because the process of distillation, and it's interesting that we say the distillation of spirits, right? We talk about in English anyway, another, uh, a synonym for alcoholic beverages is spirits. And um, that's, you know, that's not, a you know, there's some meat there. There's some meat to be explored there. It's a little bit beyond the topic of this podcast, but I'm a little bit of a, a word nerd and I like that stuff and I love history and, and um, particularly ancient history. But so the practice of alchemy um you know, came from a time where science and spirituality really were hand in hand, right? So um, if we look at Isaac Newton, right, who um, did so much of the work that we rely on today, okay, Isaac Newton, the English scientist who, um, you know, we'll say discovered the laws of gravity, um, planetary motion, invented calculus in his spare time. He was actually home uh, avoiding the plague, which is an interesting um, parallel to what's going on today with uh, you know with the pandemic. Um, he invented calculus. He um, you know we use in physics his his um, you know his principles are are taught and used to this day in physics. Um, but Newton dabbled in alchemy. He had an alchemical lab. And he, you know, there are, um, you know, we have writings, he wrote about it, he did practical experiments, practical um, physical experiments. And he, you know, I, I, I'm going to condense his viewpoint greatly, so excuse me for that, but I don't, you know, would not have the time in any single podcast to discuss his viewpoint thoroughly. But he viewed the universe as like a giant machine that was um, like a like clockwork, right? Like the insides of a clock working, and he saw you know God or spirit as the driving mechanism behind that. And the practice of alchemy, the practice of studying physical material and trying to transmute it, had a spiritual component um, in two ways. One, there was no real separation between between um, spirituality and science. Um, you know, God, if you take the Christian perspective, the Judeo-Christian perspective, God was present in everything and everything we did. And they were trying to discover basically the secrets of God, the secrets of how the universe was created and things were made and the print, you know, the principles behind, um, material things, right? How the, how did the material world come into existence and how was it maintained and how, do we have, um, you know, from a single origin, right? From from God speaking a word, how did how did everything come into existence? Um, and if we think about uh, how the Big Bang happening, right? The entire universe being created from uh, an infinitesimally small particle, and then all of a sudden it's everything. You know, it took a little time to become everything we know. Um, we had to have some stars show up and make some elements for us. Um, but, you know, it's really similar. If you, if you parse the language of what's being described, I honestly think I would like to return to a time where science and spirit is, is hand in hand and that it's not automatically assumed 
that one thing cancels the other thing out. We can have evolution, right? And we can also have spirit. We can have chemistry and we can have alchemy. Okay. So these alchemists who are physical, what we call practical alchemists, um, were trying to work out the secrets of nature. And yes, they were trying in many cases to um, transform lead into gold because that would have been a really cool way to get rich back then if you could do that. And they were also trying to find this thing called the Philosopher's Stone, um, which was the magnum opus, the great work, the the thing that would Im, you know Im, give you um, immortality. And um, so that was sort of the practical side. Now there is, on a purely spiritual level, um, and I and I don't because a lot of this is um, a little bit murky in history. Um, because, you know, there was a lot, particularly in Western world, there was a lot of repression of ideas and certainly spiritual ideas that were outside the bounds of um, sort of, you know, what was considered acceptable at that time. Uh, we, don't, we don't 100% know when the, the sort of, and how the sort of split between pure spiritual alchemy and practical alchemy happened. But alchemy started to become about transforming the person, transmuting the person, um, the the you know the lead of um, suffering and normal life into the gold of uh, enlightenment, for lack of a better term, right? Becoming spiritually perfected, purification is a big part of the alchemical process, and alchemy finds its way into many, many different spheres of Western spirituality. Certainly Eastern spirituality has its own forms of alchemy. Um, if you look at Taoism, they have, um, they have elements the same way that we have, we use the alchemical elements in Western spirituality. So we have, you know, um, earth, air, fire, and water. You've probably heard that before. It's a little bit different in Taoism where they have, um, you know, earth, wood, fire, water, and metal, but it's the same idea. You have these sort of principal, um, principal elements, and this shows up in everything, everything from hermeticism to ritual magic to, uh, you know, the symbols of the tarot deck, right? The tarot deck, you have the, the cups, which represent water, and the wands, which represent fire, and the swords, which represent air and the pentacles or the discs which represent the element of earth um you know and the the tarot goes back hundreds of years and obviously alchemy is much much older than that these principal materials but that got filtered you know filtered through all of these different lenses so the base practice of alchemy is about transmutation it's about taking something maybe less desirable and transforming it, transmuting it into something more desirable, lead into gold. So when I talk about the alchemy of suffering, I talk about transmuting suffering. And I'm going to differentiate a little bit between um, the idea of pain and the idea of suffering. Um, because... Pain is, you know, pain is something that is kind of a given. Uh, if you have physical existence, we feel all sorts of, we feel all sorts of pains. Sometimes you have physical pain, and you can do all sorts of things to numb your pain. Right? If you have a toothache, you can take some medicine or go to the dentist. If you have a headache, you can take, you know, take some aspirin or whatever acetaminophen or however you pronounce it. Wherever you're from, I realize that different. Countries, different English-speaking countries have different ways of pronouncing that. It's fine. So um, we have ways of numbing our pain, right? Because um, sometimes we, we associate pain with suffering. Suffering is about something deeper than that. It's about an emotional, um, an emotional resistance to the pain, for lack of a better term. It's about holding on holding the pain in place by resisting it it's about um you know 
to uh, to to speak a little bit, um, maybe in an adult manner. <laughs> so so we say, um, you know, there are people in this world who practice um, sadomasochism, for example, as a sexual practice, who embrace pain as a source of pleasure, right? Um, and I don't know, but you know, I've spoken to I've spoken to people who kind of live in that world and it's an interesting thing it's an interesting thing that they can take pleasure from physical pain some people take pleasure from humiliation uh, i would say that there is this sort of um way we bring pain into our lives and hold it in place um because there is a part of us there's a part of us actually that enjoys the suffering because we're either we're used to it or there's some trauma in our life or we're trying to replay trauma or wounds that we can heal it. But it's there. It's there so that we can heal those parts of ourselves, right? Um, On a physical level, if I have a toothache, right, I, I feel pain. I could numb that. I could, you know, I could take some drugs, I could drink a lot, I could do all kinds of stuff and not, you know, be less aware of the pain or be not aware of the pain. But I'm not addressing the toothache. I'm not addressing the issue. What I really need to do is go to the dentist and have my tooth taken care of, right, instead of just numbing the pain. And so often in this world, that's what we do, you know, Um we stare at our phones all day. We drink. We do drugs. We, um, gosh, we escape into spirituality. I've talked about spiritual bypassing before, right? Which is the use of spirituality to not address pain points, to not address wounds, to not do your healing. Um, and I will repeat this till I'm blue in the face. And I'm sorry if this is something that I've said over and over again, and I will continue to do so. I guess I don't actually apologize for it because it's intentional. Um, I do not care if you think you're enlightened, if you are a guru of some kind, if you can levitate, if you can walk through walls or turn invisible, um, you always need to be working on yourself. You need to do your self work. There's an important reason for that. It's because you are, you know, you are a conscious projection into the world, right? Your existence on this plane of reality is being projected through, you know, layers of your spirit and layers of your consciousness. And we heal the world when we heal ourselves. Let me repeat that. I'll actually reverse it. I'll say when we heal ourselves, we heal the world. And that's absolutely true. And um, there's, some, there's some great research out there. I was reading, um, uh, I'm very interested in trying to be a good parent. You know, I have children and um, I do, I, am, I will never say that I am perfect ever in my life. Um, I am far from perfect parent. Uh, but I do my best, and I do my best to be conscious about parenting and make good choices about the things that I do and say and how I show up in the world with my children. Um, and there is fantastic research showing that um, parents who do their work, whether that's going to therapy or doing your own shadow work or what have you, um it is incredibly healthy for your children, right? Because you just the way you show up in the world affects everything. It's so impactful upon your children. Um, but I would extend that out and say it's not just your children. It's the people you interact with daily. We're a little like, you know, imagine that we're just walking around the pandemic is actually sort of a, um, a good metaphor for this, right? We're walking around infecting everybody with our energy. And the thing is, we can do it. We don't have to be in close physical contact to do that. So I hope, for example, that when you listen to this podcast, that my energy comes through and that it is loving and nurturing and informative. I hope, I hope, I, I work on that, 
right? And so if I can sort of infect you with that positive energy, that makes the, I think, makes the world a better place for everybody. Um, and there are a few practices I'm going to talk about, like specific meditational practices um, that you can do and learn more about. Um, I don't have time to actually teach them all in this podcast, but I'm going to tell you about them. And um, certainly you can find out more. Um, I do want to, there, there is an interesting uh, book I want to recommend. You know, having, I'm going to recommend a couple of books today. I very rarely, I read a whole lot, but I, I very rarely recommend books because I think it's, um, it can be very personal. I mean, I would recommend a book sort of one-on-one if, you know, if a, um, a client or a student came to me and they were, you know, struggling with something and I knew a book that had, um, some really good information for them, I would not hesitate, but sort of blanket recommendations, um, because I, I know everybody listening to this, um, I have listeners from, I think the last time I checked 21 different countries, um, gosh, I'm grateful for that. That makes me so happy that I get to talk to people from all over the world, um, through this forum. Um, and so, you know, you're all living in different cultures and you're men and you're women and maybe transgender or non-binary and, um, you all have different lives and different cultures and different languages. Although I'm, you know, I'm assuming you at least speak English as a second language, um, you know, because you're listening to me and I'm only communicating in English at this point. Um, you don't want me to try to speak any of <laughs> anything else. Uh, probably easier to understand me in English. Um, I have a smattering of, I have a smattering of French and I grew up in an area where there were, um, you know, some French speaking people, but it's full of slang and my accent's really weird. I'm told. So I'll, I'll stick to English for now. Um, but I'm going to, you know, I'll recommend a couple of books today. And the first one, you know, primarily because I was talking about um, the way we hold on to pain sometimes and derive pleasure from it and sort of um, along the lines of people who engage in BDSM um, in their sex life, there is a book um, called Existential Kink by a woman named Carolyn Elliott um, that I like a whole lot. I've listened to it on audio and I've read the book um, and she does couch things in sexual terms. If you're uncomfortable with that, you know, maybe, maybe that isn't the book for you. Um, but what she's really talking about is this stuff, this stuff, how we sometimes attract painful experiences into our lives, either to relive some trauma or, um, you know, there is some part of us that's taking pleasure from, from bringing these, you know, these painful experiences into our lives and sort of what to do with that. I mean, there's practical advice. I don't think the observation alone, I mean, it's, it's definitely interesting, but without, you know, okay, I understand that. What do I do with it now? Um, That's, you know, that's of limited use. So she has lots of practical exercises and um, I am in a, I am in a study program with her, um, at the moment I'm in a year long study program with her and it's, um, absolutely fascinating, absolutely fantastic, um, program. I, I recommend her as a teacher, uh, and I, I do recommend her book. And again, it's called existential kink. Um, you can find it wherever books are sold. I'm sure, I'm sure you can find it Amazon or, you know, bookstores near you or order it through a local bookseller is a great way to, to get a hold of books and support local business. So that's one book that I'll recommend and I'll talk about the other one in a few moments. Um, but I want to talk, I do want to talk about transforming suffering and there are, there are a few ways to do this. And I'm, you know, one is transforming our personal suffering, right? Transforming, um, you know, transforming how we show up in the world is by, by transforming our personal stuff. And really when you get underneath it all, we're all connected. That's the principle there. Everything is connected to everything. And so, um, 
you know, if you think of yourself as like a, a node in a giant three-dimensional net connected to every other node and every other node is a, a person or a being of some sort that has the capability to suffer, um, when you change yourself, you it sends ripples along this net in every direction. And so, um, you know, working on that, working on transforming suffering um, helps to transform the suffering of those close to you and those distant from you because it sends ripples out. You can't do anything without having, you know, sort of the butterfly effect of it spreading throughout the world. So, um, you know, if you're familiar at all with, with Buddhism, you know, the Buddha talked about the Four Noble Truths, right? And the Four Noble Truths um, are all about suffering, that there, is, that there is suffering, that there's a reason for the suffering, that there's a way out of the suffering. And really, um, you know, the teaching, not to simplify all forms of Buddhism into sort of a, a, a single idea, but just the idea about suffering is that there are there are sort of two main causes of suffering, um, and those those causes are a, attachment and aversion. Right, we want to cling to those things, we attach to those things that bring us pleasure, and we avert or push away those things that we perceive as being us pain, bringing us pain, and the thing that causes us suffering from attachment and aversion is that um, nothing lasts forever. So anything, quote-unquote, good that we attach to, that we have to, to you know, derive pleasure from, um, is not going to last forever, right? Uh, relationships change and end, um, you know, sunsets end, a good meal ends, um, our good health might end as we grow older. We we all die. The everybody who has ever existed um, has or will die someday. So there's impermanence, right? And so anything you attach to, anything you say, you know, these conditions are necessary for me to not suffer, um, is a recipe for suffering, because those conditions will not always exist. You know, besides your indwelling, unborn, um, divine spark, there is nothing that's permanent. Everything changes. So that's one lesson. The other lesson is that we avert the things that cause us pain, um, thinking that if I hold them off, I will not suffer. So... Right, I numb myself with alcohol so I don't have to face my emotional turmoil, or I, you know, push away thoughts that are painful to me. I push away grief, for example. A relationship ends or a loved one dies, and I stuff the grief down in. That honestly is just a recipe for prolonging suffering if not increasing it, multiplying it. And so there's this state of equanimity um, that the Buddha attained where, you know, we say no attachments, no aversions, right? Be attached to nothing, avert to nothing. That's hard. Boy, it's hard. If it weren't hard, we would all be enlightened. We would all be Buddha. We would all be the Buddha, Right. Um, but this is a major lesson, I think, that um, I am on this earth to learn in this body. This body does experience pain. This body has experienced, this mind body has experienced suffering. I experience attachments and aversions. I'm not above that. Um, you know, obviously it would be hard for me to talk about it if I was above that. And I would be the Buddha, right? So I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily have a podcast. I don't know, would the Buddha have a podcast? What do you think? He did, he did preach, but um, maybe he would have a podcast if that technology existed back then. 
I'm not the Buddha. I'm not enlightened. I'm not um, beyond suffering. I'm not beyond attachments and aversions. Um, I do, you know, I work on it though. I work on those things. It's part of my self work. Um, it is a tree that has borne much fruit in my life. So, you know, we can work on equanimity. And so the second book I would recommend to you today, the second and final book I will recommend to you today, um, is a book that is super practical and deals directly <clears throat> directly with attachments and aversions and um, releasing emotional energy and that sort of thing. Um, and that book is called The Sedona Method, S-E-D-O-N-A, after the city in... Arizona in the United States. The author is Hale Dwoskin, D-W-O-S-K-I-N. And again, this book's been out for a long time. Um, I first read it, gosh, a long time ago because I didn't, I didn't have kids when I read it. And I remember that because the book so was so profound to me um, that I was like, I need to go meet the guy who wrote this book and I um, flew out to Sedona and did a class, um, did a class in the Sedona method out there and then um, did another class with the author in New York city and I've done all kinds of online classes. And again, like this is uh, there are, it's a book that has a series of practices each one a little deeper, each one a little more profound. Um, and the method was created by a man named Lester Levinson, who passed, um, I think, in the 80s, maybe. Um, 80s or early 90s, he passed and and passed the torch on to Hale Dwoskin, who, um, you know, runs the organization and, and teaches and wrote this book. And has there's a, there's a movie as well, called I believe it's called Letting Go, which is sort of a video um, teaching of, of these teachings. And um, I highly recommend it as a practice. The nice thing about it, one of the nice things about it is it is, um, it is spiritual without being spiritual. Like the practice is all about using the emotions as a tool for release. Um, you do not have to adopt a belief system or give up your belief system or um, study with a guru or not study with a guru or anything. I have, when I've gone to, uh, you know, the couple trainings I've done, I've sat in, um, in the training with people who were um, all walks of life. I remember meeting a rabbi in there, for example, and, um, um, people who were hypnotherapists and people who were really into yoga and people who um, were not considering themselves spiritual at all. So to me, it's a brilliant practice. It's really about um, the human condition. And it's one form of the alchemy of suffering. It's about transmuting these feelings, going deep into, um, deep into feelings and releasing them, which when you do that, they just become energy. All emotion is, uh, is an energy of specific frequencies and all of that stuff. So this is, um, so between existential kink and the Sedona method, um, these are really some tools for, for personal transformation. Um, and then, so I'll move from sort of personal transformation to a, you know some types of spiritual alchemy that I believe are um, how I describe it more global ways that you can act that um, are sort of outward facing. So Sedona method and EK are very inward facing practices, um, and that's fine. And in that respect, and the fact that they're inward facing we might say that they're reflections of the divine feminine, right? The divine feminine is, is sort of, um, or not. I mean, you could look at it from, I, I guess you could look at it from the perspective that it's also, and, um, you know, it's a divine masculine, um, effect because you're, you're working on the individual. 
So there's a bit of a balance there. But it is inward. They're inward practices. Um, I do want to talk about a couple of outward spiritual alchemical. That was a hard word to get out. I apologize. Spiritual alchemical practices that are a little bit outward facing. And this isn't to say that you will get no benefit from them because that is not true. Because as you affect the world, you affect yourself. You are inseparable. You are not, you know, you, I hate to say this, but even though your ego says you are, you're really not a separate being. You're an aspect. You're an aspect of the divine. You're an avatar of the divine. I know that word avatar has very specific meaning in some religious practices, and so I apologize if I'm using it in a way that's incorrect for your belief system, but um, I'm, I'm just saying that you are a representation of divinity that's inseparable and connected to everything else. You're an aspect. And so there's, you know, there's a couple of practices I'll, I will talk about. The first one is a Tibetan practice. Oh, and I think I might, well, I'll, I'll end with another Tibetan practice that is very individual as well, but I'll talk about these practices first. So the first Tibetan um, practice is called Tonglen. And um, this is a practice that the, the, the current Dalai Lama has said is the highest form of Tantra, right? Um, and I'm not particularly an expert in Tantra. And in the West, when you say Tantra, most people think about sex, but that is a one tiny part of all there is of Tantra. Um, and so to me, from my viewpoint, as sort of an outsider to... Um, you know, tantric systems, although I studied tantric Buddhism for a while. Um, you know, again, it, tantra is about spiritual alchemy. It's about transforming, transmuting, um, you know, different forms of energy. Like the, the sexual practices of tantra are about transforming the energy of desire into the energy of enlightenment. Um, so Tonglen, T-O-N-G-L-E-N, and there are different ways of practicing Tonglen, and I will let you Google that. You can find um, you can find lots of instructions out there, and sort of different ways to practice. And find, you know, if it interests you, find a way that that works for you. But Tonglen is a meditative practice, and um, in the meditation. You do, um, along with certain types of breathing, you visualize taking in the suffering of the world. And sometimes you'll focus on a specific aspect, right? So I might um, focus on, um, I want to take in the grief of people who have lost a loved one to COVID, right? To the coronavirus. Um, And I will breathe that in. I will imagine taking that from the world and breathing that in. And then I will use the energy of my heart center to transform that into healing light. And when I exhale, I will visualize exhaling the healing light. And it is a, it's a profound practice. It's an absolutely profound um, practice. It heals the world and it heals the energy in, in the process you heal yourself because when you're taking in certain types of suffering from the entire world, you are part of the entire world. That includes you. And so Tonglen has uh, become part of my personal practice. It's something that I'm going to try to spend some time with daily um, because I have found it to be profound and beautiful. Another practice uh, that comes from uh, comes from Buddhism is oh, and I, before I get into that, I do want to say um, I, I recognize that um, breathing in suffering. Imagine breathing in suffering might seem a little shocking for some people who have certain New Age belief systems, where you know what you focus on is what you attract into your life, and um, and. And so why would I focus on suffering? Why would I breathe that in? You know, that sort of thing. And I, and I understand that concern. Um, I can tell you that 
you're not breathing in the suffering and dwelling in it. You're breathing in the suffering to transmute it. And the consensus is from people who have been practicing, you know, practicing this art for who knows centuries, um, is that it is not, it is far from harmful. It's actually a really beautiful healing practice. Um, and so that's not something I would be particularly concerned about. If you were doing some sort of practice where you breathed in suffering and that was it, um, yeah, you don't really want to take that on. <laughs> that's not sort of a, um, a great thing to take on. So the next, the next piece also comes is a, is a form of Buddhist meditation. And, and again, this isn't one that exists in different forms. And so I will leave it to you if this, this interests you, um, but this is a, a form of meditation called metta, M-E-T-T-A, um, which is also called loving kindness, compassion meditation. And um, during this meditation, there are um, basically recitations that you do. So you imagine, um, you, you know, you imagine somebody that you love, and then you do certain recitations. May they be free from suffering. May they be free from physical pain. May they. So it's like a little blessing that you're doing, and you go through, um, you know, different relationships, people that you have relationships with, and you, um, you know, picture them, and you do these recitations, and it includes people that you've had difficulty with, people who might not have shown up in loving, supportive ways in your life. And when you take somebody who has hurt you and, um, you know, maybe been not so nice to you and you wish for them to be free from suffering, there is this beautiful alchemy that happens inside you. Um, you know, this starts to allow forgiveness to creep in. And forgiveness is... So forgiveness is a sticky topic. I'm going to do an entire podcast on forgiveness very soon. Um, sometimes we focus on forgiveness to the detriment of somebody who has been victimized by somebody else or who is suffering. And we're, oh, you need to forgive, you need to forgive, you need to forgive. Um, that's not a good way to approach forgiveness. And again, I'll do an entire podcast on that. But you can um, you can begin... Metta can be a way for you to begin to experience some forgiveness, some letting go. Um, and in, in this way, forgiveness is not about letting somebody off the hook for, you know, causing you harm or causing you pain or hurting you. Forgiveness is a way for you to release some of the suffering that you are holding. And, um, and that is a beautiful thing. That is a transformative thing. Um, and I love metta, and I've led, led metta meditations before. And it's such a sweet practice. So I would encourage you, if this sounds, um, if this sounds like a nice thing, give it a try. And again, it's a, it's a, it's a Buddhist practice, but you don't have to be, um, you don't have to be a Buddhist to practice metta. It's, it's, um, you know, it's, uh, pretty much non-denominational. It's not, um, it's not a prayer per se, although they're, I guess they're little prayers, they're recitations, and you're not praying to a deity. So if you are, you know, a devout Muslim, I don't, I don't think there would be anything there that would, um, prevent you from doing that or a devout Christian or what have you. I don't think there's anything in there that would, um, counteract, your religious beliefs or your practices or prohibitions against practicing something else. And I think that's true for anything I'm recommending here today. Um, so, uh, so have at it. Metta is, is another beautiful practice. Um, so the other, uh, another practice that uh, I want to talk about is sort of, um, it's taught by, um, a pretty well-known shamanic teacher named Sandra Ingerman. And even though she's a shamanic teacher, she will tell you that this practice is not, um, it's not shamanism per se. 
you know, even though that's her, that's her, um, that's her thing. And, um, it was taught to me by my shamanic teacher. Um, and it's a, it's something I practice and it's something that I have taught my students and, um, you know, my, my, you know, people that work with me as clients. Um, and that is a practice called transfiguration. And again, I'm not going to teach it over this podcast because it would take too long. And, and I'm just sort of wanting to introduce you to some uh, alchemical practices that you can do. Um, transfiguration is an absolutely beautiful practice that involves really getting in touch with and identifying that divine spark that I talk about so much and allowing that divine light that comes from you to just shine unhindered. And um, Sandra Ingerman has done some amazing experiments with transfiguration where they have taken, you know, polluted water from a stream and, you know, placed it in a circle where they were all doing this transfiguration practice and um, then sent the water off to the lab and the contaminants disappear out of the water. So it's become a practice that a lot of people are using to heal the earth, um, to heal people around them. Um, the thing with transfiguration, that's a little bit different than something like meta or um, you know, some of the other practices that are about sort of transmitting. Um, transfiguration is not about transmitting. You don't send, you don't, you just project your light out into the world and it goes where it goes. But it does happen to have an interesting effect that is, I think, still undergoing scientific study. Um, my guess it's going to be very challenging for science to explain how it works. Um, but do we really care? <laughs> do we really care? Um, but it's nice. And again, this is where these areas of science and spirit can kind of go hand in hand. Hey, we have this practice. We know it has this effect. Um we don't know exactly why it has this effect, but we can prove the effect. So keep practicing, right? Um, placebo effect is a good one, right? Where you can even tell people they're being given a placebo and it has an effect on them. And we don't know exactly why that is. Um, we don't know if it's belief or the energy or what is going on there, but placebos work, Um so it's kind of an interesting thing. So these are some of the practices I've gone through. You know, Sedona Method, Existential Kink I've gone through. Um, uh, you know, Tonglen and Meta and um, Transfiguration. So there's five alchemical practices that I encourage you to look into, try out, adopt, um, you know, adopt the ones that are useful to you. Adopt the ones. And how do you know what's useful to you? You'll, you'll know because um, your personal suffering will decrease and you'll see, you'll experience change in people around you. Your relationships will change your, um, you know, that, that sort of thing. This is where you can be a little bit of a scientist, right? Where you can experiment and, you know, form a hypothesis. If I do this practice... Um, I'm going to feel happier. Do you? Do you feel happier? Do you feel more at peace? Peace is sort of a very, there's stuff beyond peace, but peace is sort of a very high level state to be in. Peace is, um, we speak a lot of peace, but peace, peace is really, you know, where we're at with the philosopher's stone. When you get to peace, you have that state of equanimity where you're, no attachments, no aversions. Um, that is really spiritual peace, what we're talking about. We have we think of peace so much as the absence of war or, you know, that sort of thing, and that is true. That is a definition of peace. But when we say peace be with you or um, I wish you peace or peace, love, and happiness, what does that really mean? 
Well, it means this, this state of equanimity, the state of being unbothered, right? Um, there's a Japanese deity, Fudo Mu, which he's um, unmovable mind, right? Unmovable mind, unmovable heart. Um, that doesn't mean you don't emote. It doesn't mean you don't feel love. It doesn't mean you don't, um, you're not, you can't be moved to tears um, by a beautiful sunset. Um, it just means you have this peaceful sense that is abiding and doesn't um, doesn't go away based on the circumstances that you're experiencing in physical life. So with that, I see um, a crow has just flown in front of my window as I talk about peace. Crows happen a lot when I'm doing this podcast and I'm looking out the window and looking at nature. They're, they're um, signifiers that usually what I'm talking about has some significance to it, at least to me. So with that discussion of peace, I will personally wish you peace and I will talk to you next time. I hope that you will um, contact me with any questions through my website. It's mainshaman, M-A-I-N-E-S-H-A-M-A-N.com. been listening to Speaking Spirit with your host, John Moore. For more info or to contact John, go to mainshaman.com. That's M-A-I-N-E-S-H-A-M-A-N.com.